Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin stepped back from the conditional witness examinations and discussed his storytelling strategy as he sought to convince the jury that Robert Durst was guilty of killing Susan Berman beyond a reasonable doubt. In this episode, he discusses when he became aware of the infamous hot mic bathroom audio, which captured Robert Durst saying, there it is, you're caught, and killed them all, of course. He also takes us through the conditional witness examinations of Peter Wilk, Lisa DiPaolo, Gene Clark, Peter Halpern, Julie Smith, and Al Cleethan. That's all coming up right after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes, if you hear heavy traffic rushing by, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when the audio seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, at the end of this installment, I will identify episodes from Jury Duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. When did that tape of the hot mic bathroom audio, when did you find out about it? So, I can't give you the dates without while I'm walking, but here's what I can tell you. When I first, for a long period of time, I knew nothing about it. And the reason I knew nothing about it is because Jarecki and Smurley knew nothing about it. And I know that's true because had they known about it, they would have told me immediately because, you know, they would have thought that this was what gets the case filed. So what happened is, is they hired a new editor to work for them. And this editor was very curious about the case. So she wanted to go back and listen to everything. So she's listening to Bob's statement. And remember, when Bob is interviewed by directing Schmerling, there are numerous cameras, numerous mics, numerous audio tracks, and they're going on at the same time. So if you're not listening to a certain track, you're going to miss something. So no one had listened to the track of Bob in the bathroom until she did, and they catch the, she catches this statement. So I found out about it well after the fact. I, I, obviously, I knew about it maybe either in late 2013, maybe. It's my memory. went back to New York, and they ended up showing it to us. And, you know, it was pretty shocking. 
All right, let's talk about Danny Goldberg. Danny Goldberg, so originally, and, and this is one of the reasons why, I think a very effective strategy that we took, and we did in the opening, is we presented the opening in kind of chronological order. We want to do that because we know that Bob took away a huge part of the case by admitting he wrote the cadaver note. That meant that the handwriting stuff is doesn't matter anymore. That means that the statements about Bob was coming down to see Susan, now they're going to have an opposite effect. So this is important, and we made sure we pointed this out. We wanted to make sure in our opening that the jury understood that all these years Bob Durst and his lawyers are saying Bob didn't write, Bob doesn't know anything about it, etc. And now all of a sudden, he's agreeing he wrote it. But the reason he's agreeing he wrote it is because he had no choice. He was trapped. We didn't want him getting any points and got up, and I'll never forget this. Dick has the nerve to get up in opening and go, Bob Durst wrote the cadaver. No, we all know that. I don't know if you remember that. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Like, are you kidding me? You've been fighting for years. Every mo, every handwriting expert, everything, trying to keep that evidence out. And now you're going to pretend that, oh, yeah, no, that was never an issue. Of course, it didn't work. So we wanted to show the progression. So what did that mean? Well, that meant originally, when, before there was a stipulation, we did the conditional examinations, we wanted to show that Susan had mentioned to people that Bob was coming down to Southern California around Christmas. Do you remember that area, Terry? Yeah, I definitely remember that area. Now, what people don't understand is, at the time we were presenting this evidence, and you can listen to, like, Chesnoff with Al Cleeson, if I remember, the defense is fighting back, saying, that's not true. Bob wasn't coming down there near Christmas time. By the time of trial, the defense is Bob was down there, so now they want the stuff. So one of the great things about playing Al Cleason and playing Danny Goldberg was the idea that when you're listening to the cross and the questions, it's very clear that the defense position is Bob never came down to Southern California. And now they're arguing the opposite. So, you know, that was a gift. So Danny Goldberg originally was far more important than he became by the time of trial. It was still helpful for the reasons I just said. But all he was basically doing is he was saying how close Bob and Susan were. He was saying that Bob had given Susan money, and he was saying that Susan had mentioned Bob coming down. Got it. All right, Peter Wilk. Peter Wilk was a really good witness. He was a really good witness because he had written down at the time. He had taken notes about what Kathy had said. To clarify, Lewin said that Peter Wilk was a really good witness because he had written down at the time. He had taken notes of what Kathy had said to him. Peter Wilk said, that he was dealing with Kathy on a rotation that was going on, and Kathy was a mess. And Kathy literally broke down, and he wrote the stuff down. He took notes. And one of the things that he said, she's just a mess. And he is saying that Kathy referred to Bob as being, quote, homicidal. Um, yeah, that's, that's not good for Bob. Generally speaking... It's not good if a woman you're going to be accused of killing is referring to you as homicidal before she dies. So I thought Peter Wilk was a great witness. And one of the things, again, the defense never seemed to understand in this case. And this goes back to a very basic premise that we've talked to before. 
if you're a good trial lawyer, you're going to cross-examine the witness. The first thing you need to ask yourself is, okay, do I think the witness is mistaken or do I think they're lying? That's really your only two choices. And then you have to handle them differently. And what the defense did not understand and what most defense lawyers are not used to dealing with is most homicides, particularly in Los Angeles County, involve their gang case. And and gang defense 101 is to talk about how witnesses are lying, how they're biased, how they're not credible. In this case, we're talking about a bunch of upstanding doctors. You are not going to be able to argue they're lying. You're just not. And, of course, that's what they did. So they would argue they're lying. They would, they would try to argue, well, isn't that consistent with, with being under the effects of cocaine? These are doctors. And if I remember, I don't know if it was Peter Wilk or Peter, Peter Halperin, one of them is saying, no, it wasn't cocaine. She was terrified. So the more they would try to argue that, yeah, Kathy wasn't really scared, she was, uh, she was under the influence of cocaine, the more they would push back on it. Ruth Mayer did the same thing. Fodwin Najami did the same thing. Linda Oaks did the same thing. They would come up with this absolutely crazy allegations to explain the witness's testimony, and the witness would shut them down. Oh, the other one where this came up was the uh, Ben Hodges, the oceanographer. And Dick is basically saying, well, isn't it true that, you know, could have been a crab that carried him up? No, that's not true. Uh, there's no scenario where I can imagine that a crab would, I mean, it would just get worse and worse and worse. I found Wilk particularly impactful because of the contemporaneous notes that he took, and he had, like, direct quotes. As I recall, he was taking the notes because he was offering excuses or reasons why he was missing these rotations. Yeah, why she, right? is, why she is having problems with rotations. I mean, you know, one yeah. of the things that, again, helped us was that these witnesses are not on islands by themselves. There are synergistic effects from the witness's testimony. So it's not just five people saying the same thing makes it five times as strong. It makes it a hundred times as strong. And, and that's what we had. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now we return to my conversation with John Lewin as he discusses the conditional witness examination of journalist Lisa DePaolo. Let's move on to Lisa DePaolo's testimony. Tell me how that came to pass. And I understand that there were some potential hearsay issues with the inclusion of her testimony. First of all, Lisa DePaolo was a journalist who had a journalistic shield where there was a lot of information she did not need to give us. And I was extremely impressed with the fact that she was willing to go out of her way to call the people that she had interviewed and to get permission to divulge things that otherwise she 
would not have been comfortable divulging, and that's what she did. So when we called Lisa Paulo, the biggest reason we're calling her is that certain witnesses, particularly Nick and Terry Chavin and Julie Smith, if I remember, had spoken to Lisa DePaulo. And since I knew that I was going to put testimony on from those witnesses, and since I knew that the defense would almost certainly have to argue that those witnesses were either were lying or not being truthful, that I was going to be able to bring in their prior statements to Lisa DePaulo as prior consistent statements. So those were read into evidence at conditional examination. That's how I got all that evidence out there. I also knew, and by the time we introduced her testimony at trial, and the defense stipulated to all of that hearsay, almost all of it was going to come in because those witnesses were going to testify. Now, in the end, the defense ended up agreeing that Nick Chavin's testimony could come in edited. And Terry Chavin, they ended up entering a stipulation, so he would still have been able to use it. So that was the purpose of Lisa's testimony. It was basically supporting the important testimony of, of these other witnesses who had made statements to her years and years before uh, they were going to appear at trial. Was there anything in her testimony that you were ultimately not able to get in that you wanted to get in? You know, the problem is it's too hard to remember right now. To the best of my memory, if it was, it was, you know, nothing that ended up mattering. One of the things about this case, Carrie, the way it ended up, is we could have lost half our evidence on the elevator, and we still would have been okay. We always knew that if this case came down to the evidence, and to jurors doing their job ethically, Bob would be convicted, you know, we had enough to convict him 17 different times. So if there was ever a piece of evidence that didn't come in, I always knew that, okay, you know, yeah, that evidence should come in, or I wish it would have come in, et cetera. But if the jury's doing their job, it's not going to matter. And if they, uh, and if they're not doing their job, then that's not going to be the piece that made the difference. So no, there's nothing noteworthy that I can think of right now. Okay. Let's move on to Gene Clark. Gene Clark was important. I called her, I wanted her testimony to come in, because it was very clear, if you listen to her, that I believe jurors would come to the conclusion that she was lying to try and help Bob, and that in their calls, Bob himself was setting her up to lie. And I believe that if jurors heard her calls in combination with her testimony, that they would come to the conclusion that, number one, Bob Durst is involved and killed Susan, and that number two, Gene Clark was trying to help him cover it up. So Gene Clark was a piece of work. Um, she was very smart. She refused to cooperate with us. She would not allow, she would not be interviewed. She would not return calls. Uh, she was very rude. And I remember my favorite part about Gene Clark was when I got her on the stand and she did not want to admit that basically she was out there basically trolling for a rich guy. And that's what she was doing. So she runs into Bob at some dating bunk, and then she pretends that she has no idea who he is. So I knew that even though she was pretending she had no idea who Bob was, that jurors would realize that this woman 
would have immediately gone home after meeting him, done a, a background check with all of his financials, and would have known everything there was to know about him. So I realized that her choices were to admit that she knew who he was, and then she comes off as a gold digger opportunist, which is the truth, or that she would more likely try and lie and pretend I didn't know who he was or that it didn't matter. She opted for option two, which made it even worse. My most memorable part of her testimony was I was basically trying to uh, impeach her with the fact that she and Bob had some kind of romantic relationship, and she just wanted to call them friends. So I asked her something like, um, did you have a physical relationship with Mr. Durst? And she literally says, I object, and then says, when she has to answer the question, no. So it's very clear with her response that we hit pay dirt. Of course she had some romantic relationship with Bob. She doesn't want to admit it. So then she just immediately lies, but anybody hearing it is going, oh, okay. So she was effective not because of the information she gave, but because of the conversations she had with Bob and because of the inferences that the jury would take from her testimony as to what she actually knew and what Bob had told her, all of which was highly incriminating. Do you think that both her and Susie Giordano were lying when they said that they had no physical relationship with Bob? Physical relationship becomes much harder because I don't have any idea, you know, whether relationships were consummated. Obviously, Susie Giordano by the time she is defending Bob, he's in custody. So, you know, I don't think there was a, quote, physical relationship. What was clear, though, is that they both had romantic relationships with Bob, especially Susie, and that that's what she was attempting, you know, to uh, monetize. Let's move on to Al Clayson. Oh, my gosh. Al Clayson was the most entertaining witness, entertaining himself of the entire trial. So you have to understand something about Al Cleason and why we originally called him. At the time we called him, the defense was Bob was never in Los Angeles, did not write the cadaver note, and never found the body. So we were calling Al Cleason to impeach that because Susan had said that Bob was going to be coming down. Now, what's ironic is that by the time the trial happened, they had completely changed their defense. But I wanted to put on Al Cleason's testimony because it demonstrated very clearly to any jurors who were paying attention, wait a minute, the defense has a completely different defense with this guy. The other thing about Al Cleason, Al Cleason was a very, very intelligent guy, and I think he was a comedian. He started getting a dissertation about marijuana that we were just all dying. I mean, it was he was a really funny guy. So in terms of what he had to contribute, the most important things were Susan's habit and custom. She wouldn't have let somebody strange into that house that she didn't know. Number two, he really humanized Susan. He liked Susan. She was very good to him. And it was important, you know, we wanted the jurors to understand that Susan, you know, like everybody, was a flawed person with both good and bad qualities. And her bad qualities were much more evident in the way the case developed than her good ones. And Al was someone who was able to speak to the good ones. Finally, as I said, Al impeached the idea that Bob Durst wasn't coming down to Los Angeles. Right. 
And at the time that was important to you at the time you did the conditional witness exam. And as you just said, the jurors could see the about face that the defense was doing in the way that they were questioning him and the difference between that and the way that they were presenting their case later on. Right. So, so someone could have said, hey, listen, once the defense admitted that Bob was down in Southern California and found the body, you don't need outfeasance for that. But that's a very basic way of looking at it. Yeah, I still want it because I gain from the fact that they are sitting there trying to impeach him in an area where later on they're going to be saying, oh, yeah, that's completely true. Look at Al Cleveland. So if you remember, the way it developed was in closing, they are using Al Cleveland saying, well, Susan was coming down, just look at Al Cleveland. And I'm going, hey, jurors, when you go back and look at it, remember, at the time he testified, they're arguing that Al Cleveland's wrong. So I knew that, again, Al Cleveland was going to diminish the defense and the defendant's credibility, and that's what happened. Okay, Julie Smith. So Julie Smith was important. Number one, she also humanized Susan in terms of what kind of person she was. Number two, she was the first person that Nick told at around Susan's funeral, Nick said to Julie Smith that Susan had told him that Bob had killed Kathy. Nick didn't believe it at the time, and that became important because eventually what the defense was going to have to argue is Nick is lying, Nick's making this up, Nick has issues with Bob, whatever it might be. And the fact that Nick told Julie in 2001 before any of the proceedings, before any of the interviews with Rick and Smirling, right after Susan's murder, that Susan had always told him that Bob had said he killed Kathy, that was extremely important. It basically meant that any attack on Nick and what he was doing now was going to have to explain why he was telling Julie Smith that in 2001. Now I had Nick corroborated not just by what he was saying at trial, but by what he had previously said to Lisa DiPaolo and what he had said to Julie Smith and what Julie Smith had said to Lisa DiPaolo. So in the end, what you're trying to do is we are trying to basically build a support structure for our witnesses where they are corroborating each other and where there's just so many building blocks that even if they try to knock one down, there's just too many. Right. Got it. Okay. Peter Halperin. So Peter Halperin was important because Peter and his wife, Peter was on that last rotation with Kathy where she basically had a, a meltdown. And she's calling Peter, who she hardly knows at the time, and telling him all these horrible things. And Peter is so concerned that he and his wife are, are telling Kathy, you got to leave him. Just come over to our place. And Kathy is telling him at the time, in essence, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give up, you know. I'm not going to just leave him and abandon, you know, what I'm entitled to. So, again, one of the things that you want to do is that you want to make the defense fight a multi-pronged battle. So if the defense is going to have to say that this witness is lying and this witness is mistaken, you want them to have to say that about 50 different witnesses. And after a while, the jury goes, well, wait a minute, why would this doctor and his wife, does it really make sense that they're lying? Well, they have no motivation. And does it really make sense that they're mistaken? 
it doesn't make sense. They're mistaken in the same way that all these other witnesses are mistaken. So again, the number of witnesses and the way they supported and corroborated each other mattered. It was important. And so that was the value that he and his wife had. The final conditional witness examinations that John and I discuss are those of former New York Post journalists Marsha Cranes and Charles Lackman. Marsha Cranes? So Marsha Cranes was important because the first statements that Bob gave about this, other than to Strzok, were to the New York Post, to Charles Lackman, and to Marsha Cranes. And so she was able to testify to statements Bob had given, which were inconsistent with many other statements he had given, and which from the start were not what you would expect. My memory is that either Cranes or Lackman also talked to Susan, and that she also was giving statements that were not consistent. So that was the point of, of their testimony. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next episode as John discusses his team's approach to the jury selection process in the Durst trial and how they use footage from the jinx in mapping out their case. Also, you can find our in-depth coverage of the significant events that John covers in this episode in the following installments of the Jury Duty podcast. The Hot Mike Bathroom Audio is covered in Season 1, Episode 7, and in Season 2, Episode 12. The questioning of Gene Clark and Susie Giordano can be found in Season 2, Episode 11, and Context for the Examination of Lisa DiPaolo can be found in Season 2, Episode 34. The testimony of Peter Halpern is covered in Season 2, Episode 6, and our review of Julie Smith's testimony can be found in Season 2, Episode 13. We also did a deep dive into the juror's reaction to the testimony of Peter Wilk in Season 2, Bonus Episode 22. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.